Chapter 7 of The Last Secrets by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The Holy Cities of Islam. The spell of far Arabia has been a potent thing from the days when the Egyptians drew wealth from this spice land of Punt, and Greek traders brought stories of the guns and jewels of Araby the Blessed. But ever since it became the holy land of Islam, a veil of secrecy, other than that of its stern climate and inhospitable deserts, has descended upon it. It is one of the oldest of arenas of adventure, and it is still one of the least exploited. Indeed, in its great southern desert, it holds one of the few unriddled mysteries of the globe. Except for the semi-mythical Gregorio, who may be read of in Albuquerque's commentaries, no one who did not profess the creed of Islam has entered its two holy cities and lived. But the greatest tale of Arabian exploration is not concerned with Mecca and Medina. It is to be found, rather, in the journeys of the English soldier Captain Sadlier in Nejit, of Sir Richard Burton in the land of Midian, of Wallen, who crossed the great Nafud Sands, of William Gifford Palgrave, who may or may not have been an agent of Napoleon III, and above all of Charles Montague Doughty, who as an avowed Christian explored the northern Hejaz and in his Arabia Deserta has written one of the foremost classics of travel in the English tongue. Compared with some of these wanderings, a visit to the holy cities was a simple matter, requiring only a firm nerve, a good knowledge of Arabic and of Mohammedan ritual, and a real or professed adherence to the creed of Islam. At the beginning of this century, the list of Europeans who had entered Mecca and Medina was a long one. They were mostly renegades, French, English, Irish, Scottish, and Italian. In 1807, a certain Domingo Badia Ileblich of Cadiz, traveling as a Moslem prince called Ali Bey, and probably in the pay of Napoleon, entered Mecca in state. But he had become a genuine Muslim. In 1815, one Thomas Keith, a deserter from the 72nd Highlanders, was governor of Medina, surely one of the strangest posts ever held, even by a Scot. The great European travelers like Burkhart, Wallen, and Burton went to the holy cities in order that, by attaining the rank and fame of a haji, they might win an advantage for traveling in other Moslem lands. More than one of them has described minutely the interior of both Mecca and Medina and the ritual of the great ceremonies. The holy places, though few western eyes have seen them, were sufficiently well known to the western world. Their true unveiling may be said to have come about during the Great War, when Hassan, the sheriff of Mecca, fought as an ally with the British, and as king of the Hejaz, proclaimed his independence of Turkey. Yet one journey was taken just before the Great War, which must rank by itself. It told the world nothing that was not known before, but it had the merit of giving a picture of Mecca and Medina under the latest conditions, a picture drawn with such vigor and in such detail that it may fairly claim to have revealed the holy cities in a new light to the ordinary man. 
Mr. A. J. B. Wavell greatly distinguished himself in command of Arab scouts in East Africa in the early part of the Great War, and was responsible for the brilliant affair at Ghazi. In that campaign, he gave his life for his country. He had been at Winchester, and in 1908, when he made the plan for visiting Mecca, had been living for some time at Mombasa, where he had acquired Arabic and Swahili, and a considerable knowledge of Moslem customs. His motive was partly curiosity, partly, as he says, to accustom himself to Arab ways with a view to further explorations in Arabia, and partly in order to obtain the useful prestige of a haji. He chose as his companions a certain Abdul Wahid, an Arab from Aleppo, who was established in Berlin, and Masaudi, a Mombasa native. The three met at Marseille on September 23, 1908. They started in good time, for though the pilgrimage was not to take place till the beginning of the following January, Mr. Wavell wanted to go first to Medina, and also to prepare himself by a preliminary discipline in Eastern life. He managed to secure a Turkish passport, which described him as one Ali bin Mohammed, aged 25, a subject of Zanzibar, on his way to Mecca. The three found a vessel at Genoa which took them to Alexandria, where they managed, not without trouble, to get their medicine chest, pistols, and ammunition past the customs. They then took passages on the Khedival mail ship for Beirut. Mr. Wavell had feared that the language difficulty would be serious, but he found it less formidable than expected, since the dialects of Arabic are many. He explained to those who found imperfections in his accent that in Zanzibar the colloquial language was Swahili and that no one talked Arabic. And on the few occasions when he had to speak Swahili, he inverted the story, announcing that, having been born in Muscat, his real language was Arabic. As Sir Richard Burton discovered in his own journey, it was rare indeed to find anyone sufficiently well acquainted with both languages to find him out. Meantime, he had changed at Alexandria into Arab clothes and shaved his head. They reached Beirut safely and proceeded at once by rail to Damascus. As they did not propose to start from Medina for some weeks, they took rooms and settled down, devoting great attention to the various Moslem ceremonies and picking up the right kind of phrases and quotations and greetings. It is on such small things that the efficacy of a disguise depends. There are nearly as many white men at Mecca, Mr. Wavell writes in his account of his adventures, as there are men black or brown in color. Syrian Arabs not infrequently have fair hair and blue eyes, as likewise have some of the natives of the holy cities themselves. I was once asked what color I stained myself for this journey. The question reveals the curious ignorance that lies at the bottom of the so-called race prejudice, of which some people are so proud. You might as well black yourself all over to play Hamlet. Abdul Wahid had brought letters of introduction to a local merchant, who was most hospitable and supervised the preparations for the journey. They passed safely through the period of Ramadan, and so complete was Mr. Wabel's get-up 
and so stalwart his Moslem respectability that it was with some difficulty that he prevented a middle-aged lady and her two daughters from joining his party for the pilgrimage. He bought the iram, the white robes which are required when entering Mecca, a full camp equipment, and a certain number of stores, and deposited his money with his merchant friend who gave him two checks on his agents, one at Medina and one at Mecca. He proposed to travel to Medina by the Hejaz Railway, a very different method from those used by earlier adventurers when aiming at Mecca. The third-class carriages were desperately crowded, and the train started to the accompaniment of gramophones, a modern invention which is very popular in the Hejaz. On the way, Mr. Wavell had a touch of malaria, and his fellow pilgrims showed him every kindness. Presently, the train reached Medane Sala, the boundary of the Hejaz, which no infidel is permitted to pass. On the fourth day, the rocky hills opened, and through a gap appeared the minarets of the Prophet's Mosque. They arrived at Medina in the middle of a battle, for the Turkish garrison had come to loggerheads with a neighboring Bedouin, and the holy city was more or less in a state of siege. The railway was spoiling trade for the neighboring tribes, and they were demanding compensation, which Constantinople would not pay. Medina lies in an open plain some 3,000 feet above sea level. To the south, the country is open, but on the north and west, between 5 and 10 miles distant, rise rocky mountains. The city, which has a population of some 30,000, lives entirely on the pilgrims, just as an English watering place lives on summer visitors. The pilgrims are classified by their lands of origin, and there are official guides called Butoas attached to each group. The first trouble arose from these guides. If Mr. Wavell went about with the Zanzibar Butoas, he was certain to meet someone who knew him in Mombasa, even if he were not caught out in the language. So it was arranged that Abdul Wahid should profess to come from Baghdad, while Mr. Wavell passed as a dervish and Masoudi as his slave. A dervish, which denotes properly a member of a certain monastic order, is a title occasionally assumed by pilgrims who do not wish to be identified with any particular nationality. Happily, at the station there were no Zanzibar guides, and the party were able to find rooms in a retired corner at the moderate rate of two pounds a month. The landlord was an Abyssinian called Iman, a man of some private means who had been captured as a child by Arab slavers and sold in Mecca. He proved a most useful friend to the party during their stay. So began a curious life of endless religious observations. Apart from the sacred places which few European eyes had beheld, there was a perpetual interest in the study of the pilgrims. Quote, a large caravan came in from Yembu, bringing crowds of Indians, Javanese, and Chinamen. Every eastern race might be identified in the motley crowd, and every variety of costume, till the whole resembled nothing so much as a fancy dress ball. In the same line of prayer stand European Turks with their frock coats and stick-up collars, Anatolians with enormous trousers and fantastic weapons, Arabs from the West who look as if they were arrayed for burial, the Bedou or Bedouin with their spears and scimitars, 
and Indians, who, in spite of their being the richest class there, managed, as usual, to look the most unkempt and the least clean. Then, besides, were the Persians, Chinese, Javanese, Japanese, Malayans, a dozen different African races, Egyptians, Afghans, Baluchis, Swahili, and Arabs of every description. End quote. Representatives of half the races of the globe may be picked out in the mosque any day during the month before the pilgrimage. The behavior of the pilgrims, who now saw with their own eyes the tomb of the prophet, which from their childhood they had been taught to regard with awe, was a proof of the living reality of the Islamic faith. Quote, Many burst into tears and frantically kissed the railings. I have seen Indians and Afghans fall down apparently unconscious. They seem to be much more affected here than before the Kaaba itself. At Mecca, the feeling is of awe and reverence. Here, the personal element comes in. The onlooker might fancy that they were visiting the tomb of some dear friend, one whom they had actually known and been intimate with in his lifetime. With frantic interest, they listened to their guides as they described the surroundings. Here is the place where the prophet prayed the pulpit he preached from, the pillar against which he leaned. There, looking to the mosque, is the window of Abu Bakr's house, where for long he stayed as a guest. And beyond is the little garden planted by his daughter Fatima. Moreover, there is no suggestion of infidel authority. The Moslem standard floats over the town, Moslem cannon protect its gates, and no unbeliever may enter. But there are startling touches of modernity. In the shops, you may buy European tin goods and note advertisements of Cadbury's chocolates and Huntley and Palmer's biscuits. The party had brought introductions from Damascus, and Abdul Wahid had made various friends, so they saw a good deal of society. The time was just after the rising of the Young Turks and the grant of the Constitution. Mr. Wavell, who was a staunch Tory, found to his disgust that everyone talked parliamentarianism and liberal principles. England and the English were everywhere in high favor because of our attitude in this recent quarrel with Austria over the annexation of Bosnia. Quote, I am afraid I managed to give the impression that Zanzibar is a sadly backward state, or that I myself am peculiarly stupid. Not to know a word of any European language is to be held very ignorant, even in Medina. Most people of the class whom I associated had at any rate a smattering of French, and sometimes of English too. I was careful never to know anything. Their stay in Medina was much enlivened by the Bedouin siege. Mr. Wavell tried to get enlisted in the defense force, and when that plan failed, succeeded in getting into a very warm corner just outside the gates. They visited, like industrious tourists, every possible place of interest, and few pilgrims could have spent a more enlightening three weeks. During the whole time, they were never in real danger. They had, indeed, a scuffle with a Persian Matoff, who would insist that Mr. Ovell was a Persian. But by vigorous bluffing, they made him apologize and afterwards employed him as a guide. Once only was there a hint of trouble. Masoudi, standing in the mosque one day before the noonday prayer, 
found himself face to face with five Mombasa Swahilis who knew him intimately, and, what was worse, knew Mr. Wavell. Masaudi showed remarkable gifts of mendacity. He said that he had left Mr. Wavell in England, and having saved a little money, thought the present was a good time to perform the pilgrimage. He was in Medina, he said, as a servant of some rich Egyptian pilgrims. As he walked back after prayer, he dropped his string of beads. The Swahilis asked where his house was, and he promised to show it to them. But halfway up the street, he suddenly remembered the beads, bolted back, and lost himself in the crowd. The incident convinced Mr. Wavell that he had better start without delay for Mecca. Their plan was to go to the coast at Yembu, for which a caravan was starting at once. They arranged for three camels, one to carry a shugduf, which is a cross between a pannier and a howdah, and the other two for luggage, and they brought the necessary food. They took with them a Persian called Jaffa as a cook, and his brother Ibrahim as a general servant. The luggage was carried down to the big square where the caravan was parked, and where the travelers had to pass the night. That evening there occurred an untoward event. Mr. Wavell was going to a shop for some small purchase when he met two Matuafs who demanded to know his nationality. The Matuafs, being a strict trades union, were convinced that he was defrauding the Brotherhood. He took a high line and showed his pistol, and, fortunately, his late landlord came down the street at the moment and took his side. What might have been an ugly experience ended in a minor street brawl. The journey to Yembu was little better than a nightmare. The fashionable road from Medina to Mecca is overland, or back to Damascus and so direct to Jeddah by the Suez Canal. Only poor people go by the Yembu route, which is supposed to be the most hazardous and the roughest in the Hejaz. There were no escort or police arrangements, no daily market, and each traveler had to carry his own provisions and water. The Bedouin hired out the camels, which numbered about 5,000, and a Badawi sheik was in charge. The countryside was infested by robbers who constantly cut off stragglers. The ground, too, was difficult going, being a rough mountain land, and while the noons were scorching, the nights were bitterly cold. Every night an encampment was made, roughly circular in shape, into which the whole caravan was packed in the smallest possible space. Quote, While I was trying to get warm, a man stumbled against me and nearly knocked me into the fire. Turning round, I was shocked to see a figure stained almost from head to foot with blood from a tremendous gash in the head, obviously a sword cut. He asked for water, and I went into the tent to get him some, but returning found him gone. We heard the next day that no less than six men had been murdered that night, and many others wounded. And so it went on, until we reached Yembu. These unfortunates were mostly people who could not afford camels, and so had to perform the journey on foot. Straying from the main body in search of firewood, they got picked up by the marauders hanging on the flanks, who seized every opportunity to plunder such stragglers of their miserable possessions and killed unhesitatingly anyone who resisted. It was in this country that Charles Doty spent part of his time, and Mr. Wavell thinks that one reason of his success was that he carried nothing worth stealing. 
the fact that Doty denied neither his religion nor his nationality seemed to him not the most remarkable fact about the achievement. Quote, the Bedou themselves are not fanatical on these points, and he did not attempt to enter the forbidden cities. Of course, the fact of a stranger being a Christian is always a good excuse for knocking him on the head, but failing it, they will soon find another if they want to do so, and will be quite uninfluenced by it if they don't. They had one row with their camel man, Saad, who tried to extort Bakshish. Suddenly, he quieted down and became all politeness to the end of the journey. The reason for this was that the resourceful liar Ibrahim had told him that Mr. Wavell was a nephew of the governor of Yembu. This story served the travelers well. It spread through the caravan, and many of the pilgrims who were being blackmailed by their camel men came to him and begged his protection and received it. At last, on the dawn of the sixth day, after trekking without a stop for the last twenty hours, they reached the gates of Yembu. Here they were delayed some time, owing to the fact that the pilgrim ship to take them to Jeddah, an old Greek vessel chartered by a syndicate of Persians, would not start till its owners considered that sufficient pilgrims had arrived. Abdul Wahid now became the popular leader. At the head of a mob of passengers, he seized the Persians and carried them off to the governor. Mounted on a pile of sugar bags, he delivered an impassioned address, concluding with, quote, We had better be dealing with Christians than Moslems who cheat their brethren in this fashion. Murmurs of protest, says Mr. Wavell, deprecated this revolting comparison. We all thought he was going a little too far. The Persians finally capitulated, and the ship got under way. But there came one last contretemps. A party of Maghribi Arabs had passed the quarantine and were halfway out to the ship when one of them died. The shore authorities refused to let them land again, and the Persians declined to take the corpse aboard. The Arabs could not throw it into the sea because there were certain ceremonial washings to be performed and certain prayers to be said. An Egyptian lawyer on board gave it as his opinion that the man, having taken his ticket, was entitled to his passage dead or alive, there being no saving clause in the contract. Finally, the Maghribis got sick of arguing, swarmed over the bulwarks, and hoisted up their departed comrade. Their fierce faces and long knives settled the point of law. At half past four in the afternoon, the siren blew to announce that the pilgrims were within that latitude where they must exchange their ordinary clothes for the iram, the garb which has to be worn by all travelers who attain a certain distance from Mecca. The costume consists of two white bath towels, one worn round the loins and the other over the shoulders. The head is unprotected, but deaths from sunstroke are singularly few. The costume is not becoming, especially in the case of a fat man. Quote, a party of elderly European Turks close to us look peculiarly ludicrous, their appearance suggesting members of the Athenaeum club suddenly evicted from a Turkish bath. The party remained four days at Jeddah, visiting, among other places, the tomb of Eve, who apparently was about a quarter of a mile in height, so it was a tiring business to make the necessary perambulation of her sepulchre. Owing to their behavior at Yembu, 
they had acquired much kudos among the pilgrims and had no difficulties during their stay the only anxiety was about the mombasa swahilis and also about a certain mombasa sheik who knew mr wavell and was proposing to go to mecca that year as neither sheik nor swahilis arrived they decided to risk it and go on to Mecca after Mr. Wavell had left a letter for the sheik requesting him to hold his tongue. They found a Mutoaf who was a local agent of one of the principal Mecca guides to whom he wrote recommending them. They never intended to employ this guide, but the recommendation gave them an excuse to refuse to employ others. Having taken every precaution they could think of, they prepared for the last stage of the journey. Quote, Abdul Wahid made a vow that if he returned safely, he would present three dollars to the poor of Jeddah. We told him we thought he was asking the Almighty to do it for too cheaply, and that he had much better make it a sovereign. To our disgust, when he did get back, he utterly declined to disgorge the promised sum. The journey from Jeddah to Mecca can be performed in a day, for it is only some forty miles. The road is protected by a line of blockhouses. Every mile or so, there is a restaurant or a booth for refreshment, and all day long during the pilgrimage season, there is a continuous caravan. A strange silence broods over everything. There is no shouting or singing or firing of guns, and the camels move over the deep, soft sand with scarcely a sound, for to the Moslem, it is the approach to the Holy of Holies. Quote, to him, it is a place hardly belonging to this world, overshadowed like the tabernacle of old by the almost tangible presence of the deity. Five times daily throughout his life has he turned his face toward the city, whose mysteries he is now about to view with his own eyes. Moreover, according to the common belief, pilgrimage brings certain responsibilities and even perils with its manifold blessings. Good deeds in Mecca count many thousand times their value elsewhere, but sin that is committed there will reap its reward in hell. Mr. Wobell and his companions, decently but simply clad in their bath towels, approached the city repeating the ceremonial prayers, to one which began, O Lord, who hast brought me in safety to this place, do thou bring me safely out again. He said a fervid, Amen. Mecca lies in a deep-cut hollow of the hills, and is not visible till travelers are at its gates. Presently they found themselves in the great square which contains the Kaaba, the black covering of which is in startling contrast with the dazzling white marble of the pavement. The Kaaba itself is a cube about forty feet square, built of granite blocks, and led into the wall as a great black stone. This stone is believed to have fallen from heaven, which it probably did, as it is clearly a meteorite. Barefooted, the little party moved round it the requisite seven times, chanting the proper prayers. Then a small circular patch of hair was shaved from their heads, and the first part of the ceremony was over. Mecca was then under the semi-independent rule of Sheriff Hassan, and on the whole seemed to be well governed. But the problems of the municipal authorities in looking after the vast crowd of pilgrims was no easy one. As at Medina, every race on earth was represented there. Mr. Wavell was most struck by the Javanese, 
who were present in great numbers, for there was then a strong Islamic revival in the Far East. The party found comfortable lodgings in a quiet street, and, as a Medina, went much into society owing to the wide acquaintance of Abdul Wahid. Mecca is one of the few places remaining where there is an open slave market, and female slaves may be bought for prices ranging from 20 pounds to 100 pounds, though Georgians and Circassians fetch more. Masoudi discovered an acquaintance in a boy called Kepi from Mombasa, whose father had died on the pilgrimage and was now left destitute. Kepi was, accordingly, attached to the party. Mr. Wavell heard the good news that the Mombasa sheik, whose coming he had been warned of, had now written saying that he would not arrive that year. The time passed pleasantly in sightseeing and giving and receiving hospitality. Mr. Wavell gave one dinner to no less than twelve guests, which, since he had an excellent cook, was very successful. There are few more curious incidents in the literature of travel than this party given by a disguised Christian and the Moslem Holy of Holies to a company which included Arabs from Bussorah and Mecca, two Persian merchants, and a Turkish officer from the Baghdad Corps. Most Western luxuries can be obtained in Mecca, including ice cream, which, according to Mr. Wavell, is a frozen mixture of tinned milk, dirty water, and cholera germs. Alcoholic liquor can also be got, if you know where to go for it. The great festival was now approaching. A white linen band was fastened round the black covering of the Kaaba, which remained there till the great day when that covering was changed. A new covering is brought every year from Egypt, made of dull black silk and cotton, embroidered with the name of God on every square foot. It is prepared in Constantinople and is said to cost 3,600 pounds. The main ceremony of the festival is as follows. On a certain fixed day, all adults must leave the city before nightfall and go to a village called Mina, some five miles to the north. They pass the night there, and go nine miles farther on the next morning to Mount Arafat, where they remain till sunset. They then return and sleep at Nimrah, halfway between Arafat and Mina. The third day they must be back at Nina in the morning, go through the ceremony of throwing stones at the three devils, proceed to Mecca for other ceremonies, and return to Mina for the night. The fourth day is spent at Mina, and at noon on the fifth day they return to Mecca. The bath towels of the Iram are now relinquished, and the pilgrim dons the best new clothes which he can afford. He is then entitled to the name of Haji, and thereafter, throughout life, can wear a special headgear, such as a green turban. The exodus from the city to Mina was a strange sight. The different holy carpets were escorted by regiments and brass bands, that of Egypt marching to the tune of barren rocks of Aden. Sheriff Hudson was there on horseback, accompanied by a crowd of spearmen and a squadron of racing camels. The ride to Mina beggared description. The best idea of what it is like, Mr. Wobell wrote, will be gained by considering that at least half a million people are traversing these nine miles of road between sunrise and ten o'clock this day, that about half of them are mounted, and that many of them possess baggage animals as well. 
the roar of this great column is like a breaking sea and the dust spreads for miles over the surrounding country when passing through the second defile we came in sight of arafat itself the spectacle was stranger still the hill was literally black with people and tents were springing up around it hundreds to the minute in an ever-widening circle as we approached a dull murmur caused by thousands of people shouting the formula lebeka lebeka alauma lebeka which had long been audible became so loud that it dominated every other sound in the distance it sounded rather ominous suggestive of some deep disturbance of great power like the rumble of an earthquake the hygienic conditions of the exodus were of course abominable tanks and springs were soon fouled by people bathing in them and the condition of the hillside was filthy beyond description often some infectious disease like cholera decimates the pilgrims but our travelers were fortunate in escaping it they went through all the proper ceremonies and stoned the three devils at mina with gusto the three devils are three stone pillars and in a mob of many thousands of bad shots a good many pilgrims are bound to suffer they bought a sheep to sacrifice like the others and a mess of offal and blood was soon added to the attractions of the countryside they then went back to mecca kissed the black stone had another square inch of hair shaved from their temples and were free to put off the bath towels now was the moment for the new clothes abdul wahid appeared in a bilious yellow garment brought from damascus Masoudi in an obsolete regimental mess waistcoat while mr wavell was chastely arrayed in white cloth robes a black jubba and a gold sash with a dagger thus attired they set out again for mina for the last ceremonies in the night a thief got into their tent and carried off Masoudi's new turban five dollars in gold various oddments including a couple of pistols in the morning they went to salute the sheriff and when they had returned and were sitting in their tent passed through the most dangerous moment of the adventure the wall of the tent was down as is usual in the heat of the day and they were squatting on the carpet when suddenly they heard an exclamation from masoudi looking round they saw standing within a few feet of them and looking straight into the tent three of the mombasa swahilis whom they had met at medina it scarcely seemed possible that they could miss seeing Masudi, and if they did, they would certainly come into the tent to greet him, when Mr. Wavell was bound to be recognized. The morning sun, however, was shining right in their eyes, so they saw nothing and passed on. As soon as they had turned their backs, Mr. Wavell and Masudi ran out of the tent on the other side and mingled with the crowd. They returned to Mecca to be congratulated by their friends on the successful accomplishment of the pilgrimage, and Mr. Wavell was free to go into the world as Haji Ali bin Muhammad. It was now their business to get out of Mecca as soon as possible, especially as money was running low. They paid the necessary farewell visits, hired the transport, and started, intending to do the journey in one day. They were, however, held up by a sentry on the road, and had to spend a cold and comfortless night in the open. It did not enter Jeddah till sunrise. At Jeddah they separated. Masoudi went to Mombasa, Abdul Wahid to Persia, and Mr. Wavell to Egypt. In summing up the expedition, 
Mr. Wovell was disposed to attribute his success not to any histrionic gifts of his own, but to the ignorance of the inhabitants of the holy cities and their lack of interest in the outside world, even the Islamic world. Quote, there are so many different sects in Islam, and its adherents are found in so many different countries, that I seriously believe that if someone invented for himself a country and a language that did not exist at all, and journeyed thus to Mecca, no one there would know enough geography to find him out. Yet, withal, they are quick enough in their way, and if some matuoff would take the trouble to write a book on ethnography and its relation to Islam of the day, and classify the different races that come to Mecca, such a deception as I practiced would become impossible. They did, as a matter of fact, excite a certain suspicion, and their two servants, though they were Persians and knew little Arabic, must have had their own views. The great assets of the travelers were their knowledge of Arabic and Moslem ceremonial, and the fact that Mr. Wavell took up his disguise long before he approached the Hejaz. He considered that Medina was much the more dangerous place of the two, and that no traveler should go there who was not thoroughly at home in his oriental character. Whatever may be said, the journey is one of extreme danger and delicacy, and demands not only great knowledge, but perpetual vigilance. It must be remembered that a European is all the time in the midst of a fanatical and devout people, and that the highest merit would be acquired by anyone who might discover and denounce the unbeliever. In spite of every precaution, there must be an enormous element of luck, and Mr. Wavell's conclusion is that his escape was due rather to a series of happy chances than to his own good management. End of chapter 7